0: Welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're concluding the book Fifteen Thousand Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batti, published in 1922, and we're on Chapter 11. Now, as I said in the last episode, uh, when you see this podcast come into your digital device on the next go round next Tuesday, it'll be as the Mariner's Library. Um, as I said last time, it seems that the phrase "rare nautical reads" is very difficult for electronic devices to understand, spoken with all sorts of different accents. So the Mariners Library, and just to confirm, we're running Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Those seem to be the days that people most enjoy to consume this content. Not much going on on Sunday and Monday. So I guess I will see you Tuesday to Saturday each week as the Mariners Library. we now on to the last. Chapter of Captain Raymond Rallier-de-Batti's fantastic book, 15,000 Miles in a Catch. Chapter 11. Homeward Bound Across the World It was about a fortnight before we lost sight of the black coast of the island of desolation on our way to France via Australia, a long way round to our native land. Upon leaving my brother and our good friends, we sailed to northwest of Long Island, and at night anchored to the west of Mayo Island, There we stayed a week, for I thought it well to let my men stretch their legs and refresh themselves before the long track across the seas, when they would be imprisoned in the close quarters of our little ship once again. We killed about fifty ducks for our larder, and then on the 10th of June hoisted sail and cruised among scattered islets north of Frog and Cat Island, until we anchored in a calm off Murray Island. Then two hours later a north gale blew but we ran before it in the dark to the south of Balfour Rock, and at 4am the wind became so boisterous that we had to shorten sail. After thus beating about, there were four days of fog and calm, until on the 15th, at night, the mists were swept away by a new gale of more terrific violence. She began first in the north, and then took a cat-leap to the south-west. Our poor ship was bruised and battered and broken in the turbulence, and neither I nor Bontemps, who had been promoted to be mate, nor the other lads, believed that we should ever sell our oil in Melbourne. We shipped heavy seas, which, as they pounced on us, smashed our portside bulwarks. The wind came shrieking at us, and invisible hands snatched at us and tore our mainmast and bowsprit rigging. The crest of a great roller, lashed to white foam like the flowing mane of Neptune's seahorse, hurled itself upon us and left us bruised and staggering, with our last rowboat split to pieces. We cast oil upon the waters like the biblical mariners, putting a canvas bag with dripping seal oil at the bows, which spread a thin sheet over the turbulent waves, while we lay to under a jib with two reefs and a small storm sail on the main. Snow squalls came at us like fluttering seabirds, which lay down to die upon our ship and heaped our deck with their white feathers and pecked at us with icy beaks and put their wet cold claws down our necks and Covered us with freezing cloaks of down. The hurricane lasted from eight o'clock on the 15th of June to eight o'clock on the 16th, and I thought that all was over with us. After all our adventures in Kigoulian, we were to face the last great adventure of death. The wind abated a little, and we held upon our course, but we sailed from one gale to another, until it seemed to us that we should never escape from this eternal tumult of wind and sea until we reached the calm haven of death. We fought our way onward, and every knot we made was a struggle for life. We tried to appease the fury of the gods or devils of the sea with plenteous libations. We had adopted a new dodge for pouring oil upon the sea. It was a small barrel slung over the bows, with a rubber hose going through the horse hole and with a sprinkler like the rose of a watering pot. We used this continually and were swimming in oil nearly all the way to Melbourne, and as every drop trickled out. We bled at the heart, remembering how we had toiled and fought on Kerguelen to get this treasure. The wind played its wildest pranks with us, and though we hoped always to get a westerly breeze, before which we might run on a straight course to Australia, it blew from every other quarter but that with perverse ill nature. It blew north. It blew northeast. It sprang to southwest. It even came from the south, sweeping up the cross-grained sea with a long, ugly swell which tried to roll us over like a barrel. At last, by my reckoning, we were approaching Cape Lewin, about 200 miles from King George's Sound. Here, we had three or four days of good weather, for the Australian continent sheltered us from the full force of the north wind. On the 22nd of July, we were about 200 miles from Cape Otway. Then, one other, and by the grace of God, our last, Gale, blew hard, and we were driven near to King Island. I was in some perplexity as to our course because I was not sure that my chronometer was correct. But when the gale had spent itself, we sighted Cape Otway on the night of the 24th of July, and I knew that my reckonings had been absolutely true. At 9am, we were six miles from Cape Otway, and I signalled the code Juliet Papa November Charlie, which was our international mark by which we had been registered before leaving France. On the following day, We saw a splendid steamer approaching us. It was a palace in comparison to our cockle shell, and I guessed it to be the pilot boat. I hoisted the flag, asking for assistance, and flew the French colours from the main. Then, in honour of the expected visit, I hurried into a change of clothes, for I and my crew were by this time the dirtiest gang of ragamuffins that could be seen on the high seas. We went barefoot. Our clothes were greasy and in tatters. Our hair was long and matted and we were by no means good to look upon. But I made myself more respectable by putting on a red and white jersey I confessed it was not very clean, a pair of torn boots and a pair of old blue trousers, which, in spite of being badly patched and tattered, were far superior to those I had been wearing on the voyage. On the whole, I was rather pleased with my change of appearance, which I thought would be sufficiently impressive to any visitors we might receive. When the steamer came close, we were hailed by the pilot. "'Where are you from?' ''From France,'' I shouted. ''Good God!'' said the pilot as though I had hit him in the chest. Then he came on board, a tall, clean-shaven, handsome officer with smart gloves on and carrying a bag. He stared round our little ship as though he were dazed with astonishment, and then looked round at the men who had brought it from France. ''Who is the captain?'' he asked. ''I felt a little hurt at this because had I not put on a change of clothes?'' ''Here he is,'' I said, smiling and holding out my hand, which he took in his neat glove.'' He looked at me up and down, at my tousled hair, my matted beard, my tattered old breeches, my broken boots, my dirty jersey. Well, I reckon you will be glad of a bath, he said. I'm sure he thought I looked a horribly dirty ruffian, but he disguised his feelings with great courtesy, expressed his admiration of our trip, and desired us to tell him all our adventures. He also presented us with the bag under his arm. I thought you would be glad of a little fresh fish, he said. My sailors begged for tobacco as they had exhausted their store five or six days before and they were perfectly happy when they lit up their pipes again. We did our very best to entertain our guests in a worthy style and I remember that dinner menu was as follows. Pate de foie gras saved up for many long months, fish fried in batter, almonds and raisins, sweet biscuits, coffee. Our friend the pilot, Mr Anthony, was pleased to express his pleasure why, he said, I thought you would be starving. This is as good a meal as you could get on a big steamer. I believe he was under the impression that we had eaten pate de foie gras regularly on the way from Boulogne. At 5pm on the 25th of July 1909, we stood at the middle of Melbourne Bay. There was a choppy sea and Mr. Anthony, who was used only to big boats, felt very uncomfortable. I feel rather unwell, he said. I think we had better drop anchor. We did this and poor Mr Anthony was very sick, but after he had tasted our vermicelli soup at dinner he said it made him feel much better and he was able to eat the rest of his dinner while I told some part of my story to him. At 7am next day we hauled up anchor and at 4 o'clock on the same afternoon we ran into Melbourne Harbour. A number of yachts and motorboats surrounded us and for the first time in my life I was interviewed by journalists who asked curious questions, peered and poked about my little ship. And were pleased to say that our little trip had made a very good yarn. By these gentlemen, I sent a cablegram to my father and mother. It was just a code word, but it carried a message which would delight them. Arrived here, all well. In my locker, under the bunk where I had slept so many days and nights in grease-stained clothes, I had kept a secret which was now to be revealed. I had been saving it up all this while. It was a Paris suit, which I had not worn since I left France. I put it on now, feeling almost ashamed of my own magnificence, and sneaked ashore because of my long hair. I went straight to a barber's and had a haircut and a shave, and after that, when I walked the streets of Melbourne, I felt that I could look my fellow men in the face. When I caught sight of myself in the shop windows, I was impressed with my own appearance of gentility. I was no longer a savage." Then I called on the French consul, who I found had been very anxious for the safety of the J.B. Charcot. He had piles of letters for us, and grasped me by the hand with warm congratulations. And so, my story ends, 15,000 miles away from France, as we had sailed with many tackings in storms and squalls, and after all these wanderings and adventures which I have set down in plain style. My men were anxious to get back to France, and having sold our oil for a good price and without trouble, I paid them off and sent them home in the French mailboat nearer. I have not seen them since, though I have had letters from them. Good fellows all, they had served me with fidelity, with dauntless courage, with hard toil. They had been my comrades nearly two years, and together we had suffered many perils and faced death a score of times. Bontance, La Rose, Esno, You are the heroes of my tale. Always I shall think of you with affection and gratitude. In this book, your names and deeds have been recorded with honour. Good friends, I take my leave of you, and wherever you are on the wide seas, I grasp your hands in comradeship. I felt very lonely when I waved farewell to them. I envied them their luck in going back to France. I had to stay in Australia as a prisoner of fortune, until I could buy up my ransom by selling my boat. Nobody wanted the little J.B. Charcot, in spite of her valour and gallant spirit, and it went to my heart to put her up for sale after all her faithful service through frightful storms and in rock-strewn bays. she had cost me 15,000 francs, counting all repairs. I sold her, at last, for 5,000 francs, just a handful of gold. It was a miserable price for so beautiful a boat. Dear little J.B. Charcot, I do not know where you are sailing now but as long as i live i shall remember you i know every timber of you every grain in your wood i tried you to the utmost and you did not fail my spirit and the spirits of henry and the crew haunt your little cabin and your narrow deck and every part of you brave boat may you be handled by men who love you as we loved you sometimes i think they whoever they may be will be haunted by us wherever they sail and that sometimes they will hear the faint music of an accordion as when Agne played at night off the island of desolation and hear the grinding of La Rose's biscuit mill and the voices of my brother and me as we sat over the chart of Cagoulian, in the tiny cabin. I spent five months in Melbourne working for my living at many strange trades before I sold my boat and had enough money to return to France. My brother had already returned in a steamer from Durban and I joined him in Paris in May 1910, rejoiced to find him in good health again. The story of our voyage had leaked out, and we were honoured by many generous and distinguished men. Prince Roland Bonaparte, President of the French Geographical Society, gave us cordial greetings and recognition, and one sentence which he addressed to us seems to me the pleasantest thing that has been said about our trip. You are 16th century adventurers, he said lost in the 20th century that is a good compliment and indeed though i make no claim to fame for what we did yet as prince roland bonaparte has said we voyaged like the sea dogs of the early romance of the sea in a small boat with a small crew and our adventures on desolation island and on the wild seas were like those of the men who four centuries ago ventured out into the unknown in a great simplicity the end well that's the end of 15,000 miles and a catch I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope that you get the opportunity to share this with somebody else so they also can hear the fantastic story of Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty. if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and for five dollars a month you can help support the podcast I hope you've enjoyed this book a new one's coming on Tuesday and that'll be episode 101 and we'll be here as the mariner's library. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.